Hello, my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Adam, the owner and reliability engineer at Apex Ridge Reliability. And they discuss what it's like consulting for companies like Boston Dynamics, Boeing, and Amazon Robotics. How to see crazy high ROI from reliability engineering, and why it's imperative to catch errors in a product early. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. I saw you did something with Boston Dynamics, those robot dogs. I was in, in the prep meeting, we were talking about it and we're like, what? Did you make one of the dogs? What did you do with them? Yeah, back in uh, 2013, actually, it's actually crazy enough. Boston Dynamics was my first customer when I started as a consultant. And um, what I was working with them on was actually the robotic mule. So it's the size of a horse, you know, so it's a predecessor to the spot that you see out there now. And uh, this thing was crazy. I mean, it was the size of a horse, right? And it's, and what was really neat is we had this one day where we did testing in the woods with the Marines. So you had that classic, like how we always treated it. And then you find out how the customer treats it. But in this case, this is war-hardened Marines. So it was even up a level. And we didn't realize they used everything as a battering ram. And they were taking this mule that we so carefully loved and crafted and just, you know, running it in the trees and through bushes and everything, which was fantastic. So myself as the reliability engineer, I, I come in with a very different perspective than the designers. Um, the designers are designing something and they want it to work. They want things to stay nominal. In my mind, you know, the failure rates that exist for this product are always there eventually somebody will find them. And if I always hope we are lucky enough in the limited amount of time we get with the product to find it. And that's exactly what happened. And the craziest thing was for this testing day I was doing, Popular Mechanics came out to do an article on it, which I was like, what? It was great. And they snapped this one picture. And you can still look it up online in Popular Mechanics, the article. And what had happened was they had run it through a tree that was like three and a half inches in diameter. And it went right into the shoulder and it broke the protection we had in the shoulder and ripped out a sensor. And the article ran under the picture. The quote is, it sucks that I broke it. And it was one of the Marines who was driving it who said that. And you can see the engineers are all bummed out. I'm the only one who looks happy in the picture because what had occurred was a, any tree size smaller than that, it would have pushed down. Tree size is much bigger than that. It would have hit and then gone around. We got so lucky that I later figured out between a three and five inch diameter tree was exactly our Achilles heel that would go in there, fit just right and, and be strong enough to break, you know, the shielding. So to me, I was like, this is gold. Like the, the fact that we got to experience this and see this and now make design changes to mitigate it. Like this is treasure, you know, and I'm so happy because in my mind, I want to find everything that can go wrong with it because in my mind, those issues exist whether you see them or not, and somebody will eventually. So that project was so cool. After that project is when they decided to do basically what became Spot, the small dog. There was a couple of big things that changed. One was scaling it down because we realized the energy we were consuming didn't, we had to carry so much fuel and 
you know, whatever potential energy we could carry in whatever form, electric or gas, that it was burdened by its own weight and couldn't do a lot of things for the Marines. And um, in shrinking it down to the dog size and making it entirely electric, all of a sudden, all the ratios worked really well. Uh, which is why you, which is why you don't see electric airplanes yet. And you see electric cars, right? Because when you scale up high enough, the equation doesn't work anymore, which now battery energy is about battery energy density is about to get to the point where airplanes will work. But, um, yeah. So then we, they, at the end of that program is when spot was born and I worked with them for a while on that and it's out on the market, which is really cool. That's crazy. I get updates. I'm on the email chain. So I get updates as the price changes. They've come down in cost a little bit. Yep. I get updates for when they're doing new things with the SDKs and whatnot. So yep. I was curious to ask you, because I'm thinking about reliability engineering at this moment in time through you know somewhat hardware, but typically people are talking about like servers. So most of my reliability conversations have been about web web applications, right? Mm -hmm. So is there a difference in principles between when you're dealing with reliability engineering, doing physical products like a spot type dog and then web servers, or are they do they transcend that? How, explain the difference there. Yeah, so pretty much the partition is electromechanical and then software. So when you say a server, server obviously has two very distinct components. You have the hardware, you know, the electrical system or whatever mechanical system, which is usually based around cooling or hard drives that aren't uh, steady state. And then you have software. And so when you're looking at engineering technology from a reliability perspective, that's a hard partition because reliability is fundamentally the study of how variability affects performance. You know, if you have a design that works, a technology that works under nominal conditions, it works exactly as you intend. So we're looking to understand that what variabilities can exist and how it affects performance. And so for electromechanical, the three primary variabilities are manufacturing variability, use variability, and environment variability. And with electromechanical, the the first thing you want to do in understanding the design and its performance now from those variabilities is what there's three basic types of failures. There's early life, which are driven usually by quality manufacturing defect primarily. There is a use life failures during life that a lot of times are categorized as uh, random failures because there's a bunch of distributions mixed up. And then in the end, you have wear out failures. And this is really the way the life of a good product ends, right? This is where you have a you know, a degrading characteristic from a stress. Um, I like to use talking about a car tire as a way to describe those three failure modes where, you know, for the tread wearing down in a car tire is, is a wear out failure mode, but that's how it's supposed to end if it did its job. If you had a, you know, a chunk in it break out, you know, when early in life from a bubble, that was a quality defect, right? And then you have random failures during life from variability and use and other things that happen and you get a flat tire. So that's electromechanical. Now, software, software doesn't have manufacturing quality defects. That's not manufactured. It doesn't have wear out, right? Because it doesn't wear out. It's not, it's, there's nothing being consumed. So what it experiences is variabilities during use life of combinations of inputs and outputs that drive failures. And what is so fascinating to me about that and why is an entire, you know, I work with some people in software reliability who are specialized in it, and I'm just always amazed, is one of the big differences is not studying how the product, how the software performs, it's studying how it was made is one of the best ways to predict reliability, 
which sounds intuitively strange, but then when you stop and think about it, if there's no variability in manufacturing and there's no wear out, what the variabilities that occur are variabilities of input, combinations of inputs that you've studied, right? You know, so picture simply your cat walking across the keyboard, right? As a simple kind of concept, that's a set of variabilities that you wouldn't have done before, right? It's like mashing five keys at the same time. And how does it respond to that? And it's an infinite combination of things to study. So studying it is difficult. But if you look at best practices and methodologies in developing software, um, you can predict trends of the likelihood of what's going to happen. And of course, at that point, it gets very interesting and complex. But here's one simple, you know, kind of basic concept is if you do in methodology while you're developing like object-oriented software, um, if you look for study lines of code as you're developing each object that don't get used or get used at a low frequency, and uh, you know, if you do that and either eliminate the ones that don't get used under your normal you know, functions or not, that dramatically changes the likelihood of uh, reducing the likelihood of a failure. Because effectively, that's like stepping on a mine, right? It's a place you've never stepped before. It never got tested in all the debugging, you know, things like that. So it's very, it's very interesting, the different strategy and the, the reliability curves look dramatically different. How long have you been doing this? You seem really smart. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Um, and also, I'd like you to speak with my two teenage daughters who have a different opinion. <laughs> but <laughs> um, but um, so, yeah, I, I guess, I mean, I've, uh, I started my, you know, I, I, uh, I, my bachelor's in mechanical engineering in the early 90s. I went off to Europe and did uh, diesel engine development over in Europe uh, for super tankers. So it was like 90,000 horsepower, four-story tall turbo diesel motors. Like you could walk inside the crankcase. Um, I did a lot of piston and cylinder design. I designed pistons that were six feet in diameter. So like my wingspan, you know, and um, I, my career at that point was very much finite element analysis, which is the mathematical modeling. In that case, it was structural and thermal. So I'd optimize piston shapes to be the best for thermal and structural and vibration analysis. Um, after a few years of that, I came back to the States and I ended up working in semiconductor and ion implanters and ion implanters, the size of a trailer, you know, basically the size of like three car lengths. And what it does is it creates a plasma arc cloud in vacuum, accelerates it and uh, manipulates the, the beam with like 5,000 pound magnets and those robotics, ultimately shooting the ions in the silicon crystal to make microchips. So our customers were Intel and Motorola, people who made microchips. And nobody grows up wanting to be an ion implant engineer because nobody knows what it is, but holy crap, I loved it. It was because they were inventing physics there. So there's this whole physics team in R&D and I was in R&D and I thought finite element analysis would just be a small early part of my career. But then I ended up starting messing with the physics guys because I, at that point, I was running the FEA department and um, they were like, oh, could you do some FEA for magnetic fields? And I was like, yeah, I'll learn that. That's cool. Can you do FEA for the ion beam optics? Yeah, totally. You know, whatever. And I just kind of kept going and going and really helping these guys kind of push the frontier of physics uh, with, you know, supporting them with this engineering analytical. So I got to kind of cross over there. And actually, I'll be honest, it's the only time in my career where I really realized like I always felt that I could do a Herculean effort and learn something new and whatever. That was the only time in my career where I hit a hard wall and I really realized that like I wasn't these guys. Like they all were way smarter than me. They all pioneered stuff. They all had PhDs in physics. And it was really funny. I kind of realized that turnaround point that like I was so far beyond 
you know, my, my, my abilities and, and that I was able to do these analyses for them. Like what was happening was usually I could use these analyses and results to make better designs, you know? And, um, once I got into the physics side, I would be able to do the analysis and they're like, what do you recommend? And I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) They did. I don't know. I got the answer for you. I don't know what to do. So, um, what occurred next was, um, you know, the history of reliability is interesting in how it's integrated in the technology over time. And, you know, this was then, you know, around 2000, you know, around 2000, I guess, early 2000s. And, you know, reliability is really more the focus of the testing to generate data to do analytical work. Whereas the finite element analysis work I was doing was really much more of, you know, you're doing it entirely as a model, you know, a math model. So, one day I was, uh, and most companies, the reliability initiatives are kind of scattered and just people dabble in it. Uh, one day I was walking to the bathroom and I heard my name yelled, you know, a director was like, Hey, Adam. And I was like, what? He's like, we're kind of curious and understanding reliability engineering a little more formally. Could you look into it and write a paper? And I was like, sure. I'm like, I'm going to the bathroom first, but I'll, I'll get around <laughs> to it and I'll do it. <laughs> I did seriously say that. Um, and, um, so I did. I wrote a little paper for them and they kind of liked it. And they're like, do another one. Would you do another one? And I was like, sure. And then I kind of saw like the really cool, like this continuation of my career with now designing specific tests to generate data to improve design and stuff. And they said, look, we're want to start a whole department here, a reliability engineering department. We're thinking that, you know, if you're interested in kind of redirecting your career, we'll grab a 30-year industry expert. Uh, we have one in mind who's his whole career was like IBM and Dell and stuff. And um, maybe you and he could build this department, you know, kind of mentor you. And I was like, I always love a new challenge. I was like, yes, absolutely. So we ended up building this reliability engineering department uh, with two labs internally. And it was so cool and so much fun. Um, and I was kind of going up the chain of command there. You know, I had like an executive mentor and all that. And I kind of realized how much I didn't want that, to be honest. I, I didn't, I didn't want to get that far away from engineering. Basically, you know, I watched people go up that chain and it's like engineering was just a thing in the, in the past. Right. You know, and, and, um, and I also, you know, didn't, yeah, anyway, just, it wasn't of interest to me. So, and I didn't want to just keep running this department because that guy obviously was going to retire. Um, and uh, cause I don't like static, you know, I kind of always want something new. So I found there was a company that, um, a medical company that was 50 years old, kind of the same thing where their reliability initiatives were scattered and they wanted to consolidate it. And it was super cool. It was um, blood analysis instrumentation. So microfluidics and robots and all kinds of really neat stuff. You know, so again, this is kind of like amazing cornucopia of technology and all new to me because I didn't know blood analysis stuff. And uh, they were looking to build a department and through word of mouth, we found each other. So I went there and I built another department you know, reliability department. And then again, the same thing. After five years, I was like, this is about the right size. Um, I don't want to go up, you know, chain command anymore. Or, you know, I just, I, I don't know. I just didn't, I didn't love that as much. Um, and I also kind of have a habit of just not, I'll say whatever I'm thinking, regardless of the person's position I'm talking to. So I would go to the executive steering meeting and to the CEO, I'm like, what we're investing in is bad, you know? And, you know, I, <laughs> I know like, that VP up. over there yeah. is really into it, but I'm like, I'll just flat out say it. I'm like, this is a bad idea and da da da. And I disagree. And, you know, and, and some people appreciate that and, you know, some don't. So, um, so then I was like, all right, what am I going to do next? I don't want to just keep running this department. 
And that's when I left and started Apex Ridge. I'm like, you know, consulting fits me. I, I want the adventure. I want the fast paced, diverse, constant, you know, feed of information. And it just fits so well. I mean, it's terrifying. I was, you know, two young kids in elementary school. You got a mortgage. I was, you know, in my, in my forties, uh, or, you know, or, no, actually I wasn't even 40 yet. I think when I started, I think it was late thirties. Um, and yeah, I mean, so, I mean, basically I learned about the difference between the animal brain and your, and your logical brain. And when you wake up at 3am, um, the logical parts asleep and the animal parts awake and you're like, what am I doing? This is nuts. So really solidly for three years, I would wake up at two or three in the morning and you just are like, what am I doing? You know, but then, you know, then you really get up in the morning and you're so excited to work. So I started at Apex Ridge. And like I said, uh, right out of the gate, my first customer was Boston Dynamics. I was like, this is going to work. You know, this is, this works. And I knew it would work because I kind of knew everybody, you know, it's, it was one of those things where I knew everybody in consulting companies and industry, and I was always involved in so many things. And um, yeah, so, you know, my customers are, you know, since then have been all house, you know, big household names, Boeing, Amazon Robotics, Hyundai Motors, Curry Coffee, tons of, you know, medical companies, Boston Scientific, Medtronic, Covidian. Um, and um, yeah, it's really neat. And so I do in the same day, I'm working, you know, I have a couple projects going. One, I'm doing a surgical robot that where the, so the surgeon doesn't even have to be in the room to operate. And then, you know, on the other side, I'm working on, you know, a device that if there's a, you know, a, it's able to handle EMP blast to control power line stuff. And another one's a, you know, with like FLIR, a small camera that goes on a helicopter. And so it's really fun. And um, yeah, I've written two books. The first book I did uh, uh, is a, with a friend of mine, Mike Silverman. Uh, it was about the reliability toolkit. And the idea was that well, for me, why it was important was so many reliability engineering books were written for reliability engineers to advance them. And to me, that fundamentally goes against the design for reliability philosophy, because the design for reliability philosophy is that everybody designs in reliability, right? There's a more fundamental DFX philosophy, which is the X is whatever you want it to be, you know, designed for quality, designed for a cost point, designed for manufacturing, designed for you know, ergonomics. So in that idea, you don't have specialty departments adding things later. You can't test in reliability. You can't, you know, that idea that you can add things later. So everybody should have some basic understanding of the tools. And there really wasn't a book I felt that did that well. So my first book, How Reliable Is Your Product? 50 Ways to Improve Product Reliability, kind of gives a good overview of the design for reliability toolkit that really anybody who's technical can pick up. Um, that one's you know, not on some, Amazon. It is on Amazon. There's a reliability culture. Is that the one? That one's on there too. Yeah, both my books are on Amazon. I want people to be able to find this. Like I was on your 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 culture book. All right, let's see. Reliability culture. How reliable is your product? Yeah, it's there. You're by Mike Sullivan and Adam Barrett. Yep. But uh, a, a quick search uh, does it justice too. So there it is. You could just type in how reliable is your product. 50 ways to improve your product reliability. And then the other one is reliability culture. That one came second, right? That's a new one, reliability culture. Yeah, reliability culture uh, just came out uh, this year, actually, uh, January. And uh, it's published by Wiley. And here's, here's how that came about. So through all my experience as an engineer, somebody who you know built departments from scratch, 
somebody who, you know, as a consultant sees different cultures and companies at a very high pace, there's a fundamental element that I've always seen that's a bit unique to reliability engineering. And it's, it has a disconnect from the higher level program uh, business objectives and, and program and product objectives. It kind of always has had that a little bit. And I can talk a little bit about the history of what I see for reliability, you know, how reliability engineering has progressed. But what kept happening was, um, as I would come in and work with technical teams, I had so much to say about how it should connect to the program and business that um, I began to develop tools to help leaders do a better job getting the maximum return on investment from their, you know, investment in reliability and making better designs. And that kind of caught word of mouth. And other leaders wanted like, oh, what is this tool you made called Focus Rotation? What's this bounding idea you made? So I even started presenting it at conferences. And I actually ended I got invited to uh, present it in Stuttgart, Germany at, at a conference once. And I kind of, what happened was, uh, I kept seeing over and over again, that you know there was a lot of need here, and I was onto something. That you know the next the next phase for reliability engineering and making reliable products is you know within the leadership part. I mean, right? We all know the Toyota way, right? I mean that that's the same thing, right? For quality, is that the Toyota way was you can't just have a quality department. You had quality has to be fundamental to the culture. So I mean, I'm not truly I'm not trailblazing in an insane way here. You know, I'm doing something. That's, you know, with regard to reliability just hadn't quite happened yet. Yeah, there's like um, Amazon, right? They're pretty popular for how they do their leadership. You got Netflix, yep. they release their decks. So, yeah. 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 So, um, what kept happening is I would I would work with the, you know, I'd be brought in by, you know, middle level leadership or even higher leadership would, you know, want me to come in. But then I would be working with the technical teams. And before I knew it, the CTO would be like, hey, Adam, can we do one-on-one meetings just you and me every week? You know, like just kind of like on the side, you know, because like, I think you can help me with this and that. And um, so my tools kept developing more and more. And um, uh, Wiley, through, you know, some connections we had, we're like, you know, this is something we would like to see happen, you know, uh, you know, be published. And it became a book. So Reliability Culture is out now. And uh, it's it's really exciting. And, and now I've started to change my services to really be where I come in now and directly with executives and and help them directly rather than that, that way that it was happening before where I kind of floated up from coming in the technical part. So now I've really divided my business into both working with technical teams, you know, to help the, the engineering teams understand, learn, and apply the design for liability toolkit um, is best, you know, in a great way. But now I also work with leaders to make sure they develop a reliability culture that fundamentally they just always make reliable products. You know, the 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 subtitle in the book is how leaders build organizations that create reliable products. You can just fundamentally operate differently. And um so yeah, can it, I can I recap that so I understand it? I just want to make sure like I'm super clear on it when I because, you know, people ask me for stuff all the time. They're like, hey, do you know somebody that does this? Or do you know somebody that does that? And so I want to okay. make sure I categorize you correctly. Okay. So sure. when you started Apex Ridge, the main line of business, what you're doing is you were like joining as engineer. You had this, you know, toolkit. And then inevitably you would like float up through the engineering teams and then begin to help some of the leaders develop this reliability culture. Right. That was like step one. Exactly. Yeah. And then step and that, two and that came from a long legacy of that, right? When I built apartments, that's what would happen, oh, yeah. right? I would pretty quickly be, you know, wanting to make fundamental changes to the organization and not just in engineering. So, 
And then now, so you still offer that service, right? Like if somebody wanted that, do you still offer that service or do you only do the leadership stuff now? No, no, no. That's still the core part of my business. I mean, that's part of who I am. I'm never, that was part of my thing with staying in industries. I didn't want to just keep floating up the ladder to the top. You know, I always want to be a part of the technology, but I think that's a good thing for leaders to do too. The two shouldn't be totally separate. I still do help people design products that, you know, won't fail in their customers' hands. Um, but at the same in, time, in five years, do you think you'll be more like in five years, do you think reliability culture will be your larger line of business? Oh, I, I think, oh yeah, yeah. W- without a doubt, it's beginning to, uh, well, that's the thing. I want this to grow because reliability culture is really my unique. Uh, I feel like with my first book and so much of my career, you're in some ways regurgitating what you've learned, right? You know, Isaac Newton figured out basic physics and you learn it in engineering school and you, you know, regurgitate it in, in a way that's distilled for the exact situation it needs to be and applied. Um, and, you know, my first book was very much about that. This book is really my unique contribution, you know, I think to, which is why I was very excited about it, about how some things can be fundamentally done different. So my, my business and my work is very much going to continue to grow in that area. And, you know, the other parts I can have other people on my teams, you know, do the technical thing and I can try to do, be more hands off, but, um, yeah, you know, what I have found in my experience is that when you have great leaders, whether they're just great leaders or they're great and they're technical leaders, they'll just sort of start having these other talented people orbit them, sort of like the next generation. So right. when you do these projects, you have like a like some other people around you that you know you involve in this, like the next generation of these really bright people. Yeah. So I when I started at Apex Ridge, I, there's so many different ways you can build a consulting company. And I really took a lot of time to think about what I wanted to do. And I decided I wanted to be a boutique firm, which means that I always am executing, designing and executing my part, you know, how I'm engaged with the, the project as something totally custom to exactly what they need. Second was if people get sold on me, Adam Barrett, they get me Adam Barrett. I'm not handing you off to anybody ever. And I also wanted to make sure that when I have other people on a project that I bring into the project, that they are the experts in that area. You know, I always say I only hire people smarter than me. And I will, I, I know the person who wrote the book on a topic and I'll get that person. So I wanted to leverage the fact I seem to know everybody. I didn't want to have people on staff that I need to bill hours for. And what would happen is, you know, I'd put that person on the project because I need to keep them busy. So I don't keep a staff. What I do is have my network of people that I bring in on projects as needed. And it has worked so well where I serve my customers, you know, in a very efficient manner. I'm not spending a lot of my time doing overhead running a a company, right? Because you lose yourself in that. I see people lose themselves in that just managing a company. And, you know, and, and I don't do that. So... Yeah, that's the the structure of it. And and as I continue to do more and more of the culture work and the executive leadership work, you know, I have, you know, I can always if with projects that are very technical, I can always bring in more people to do more support work in there. I'm curious to know about your uh, reliability culture type service. So I, you know a lot of people, so basically you just, you know, put your sign out like this is what I'm doing and word will spread right through your network. But I'm curious um, you know, being an entrepreneur and developing products myself, there's always, uh, 
a problem that you're solving. There's always some moment of pain the individual is experiencing before they say, I need to go find a product or a service to this solution. What is the pain? Uh, what is the signal people are receiving before they say, I need, I need Adam, I need help with reliability culture? Yeah. So unfortunately, so often they do have to experience the pain to really be aware of it. Because you know, when you're excited about technology and you're developing, you want to get it out there. And that's one of the things unusual about reliability compared to other things you can invest in because the, the return on investment is kind of far out there, right? Because you can get the product out, but it, in a year, year and a half, issues start rising. There's high warranty costs. Now you're losing market share because customers aren't happy. They're canceling orders. You're hemorrhaging money you know, in, in trying to recover and fix things. You're not investing in next generation products. And having gone through that, quite often, you know, leaders uh, will then, when they're doing a new product, be like, I think we need help here, you know. And I actually came up for uh, came up with a term for this called time to reliability, right? Because leaders always talk about time to market. And, you know, time to market is, you know, when they launch the product. And, you know, these programs, you know, they kind of become freight trains and you want to stay on target, you know, on schedule. And, you know, you released a product and then there's kind of this hidden unspoken phase of this kind of recovery phase. Nobody really labels of when you're trying to quickly address and fix things and effectively finish maturing the product in the field till it does what it needs. But it really is a program phase because it has resource going to it. You know, it's taking time, it's taking money, it's taking talent. So when that's complete and you can shift resource away from it, I call that time to reliability. And I wanted to give it a name because I wanted people to really acknowledge it, because that's the real cost of not doing that earlier. Um, once you do that and you begin measuring you know, the real cost, the real time to market, time to reliability, you begin to really clearly see the insanely high return on investment of doing these reliability tools early on, which when you're not seeing that or really measuring you know, that outcome. And, you know, your design team and reliability team are like, hey, we found something that we don't think has a lot of margin on it for variability, or this feature, we're kind of questioning it. We want to study it for four more weeks and look to improve it. And the project manager says, hey, my bonus is tied to this thing getting out in July. And the leadership's like, yeah, we got to get to market. The pressure's high. Sorry, no four weeks. But then when you can tie that to uh, recovering that uh, seven-month recovery of issues, millions and millions of dollars, you know, between, you know, service diagnosing it out in the field, engineering stopping what they're doing, and you can really make that connection. It's a no-brainer to be like, yeah, let's take the four weeks time to market. You know, the real time to market is with that recovery in there. And there's something called the rule of tens, um, and the rule of tens is for every stage in a program that you find the same issue, it costs ten times more. And at first I thought that was, first time I heard it, I was like, nah. And now I see that that is insanely conservative. It's far more than that. So, you know, the idea being that if in first design review, you caught an issue in a design review when, you know, you're not even a prototyping stage, you know, and somebody points it out, the engineer can go fix it at their desk in their CAD modeling or whatever, you know, and it's, you know, whatever, you can put a hundred dollars on that or yeah. If you then go, you know, a couple more stages down the line, that same issue, you don't catch it. You know, it's much more expensive when you're a prototype. It's much more expensive in manufacturing prototype. It's insanely expensive out in the field, right? That same simple issue. 
you know, and the rule of tens is really true. And you can turn a hundred dollar problem into a $10 million problem pretty easily. But, you know, you would think with all of this that it would be obvious, right? And people after just even experiencing that once would do it differently. But there's some really interesting situations that happen, and I'll describe one, that kind of leave people accidentally in this perpetual cycle of experiencing this. And you watch companies just drive themselves into the ground. There's a million examples where you're kind of like, why didn't they, you know, how come they didn't correct this or see it? And I'll give you an example. One is, you know, you have a new a new program and you have this very intense time to market. And one of the fundamental problems, and this actually drove one of the earlier tools I made called bounding um, and based on the product factor balance is, um, and, and that's in my book, Reliability Culture, is when the company starts and they're going to design a new product, they have a very specific balance between, you know, time to market that's critical. You know, if it's a toy for Christmas, you better have in the shelves by Thanksgiving, right? If you have a competitor coming out with something in August, you know, you don't want to be a year after because they will at that point be the market leader. Um, you have cost point. That's very important as well. You have reliability, you know, and you have, you know, there's a lot of factors, you know, that you balance certain features, you know, does it need Bluetooth? Does it need whatever new feature? And those are all competing factors for time and money. And you figure out a balance that really works. And there's not, you know, there's like, if you go to look at for a power drill at Home Depot, there's like 12 different to pick from, right? And there's the one that's $25. And then there's the one that's $300, right? The $300 one is the right one for the contractor because it has insanely high reliability and features that save time, which to him, $300 is nothing because if that breaks, he has his crew standing around not doing any work. And that's really expensive. Whereas the homeowner, you know, you're probably mortgage poor and you're only going to use this thing a few times. And even if it does break, you're like, cool, I can take the rest of the day off. I'll get a new one next weekend. You know, So that balance, each one is the exact right balance for a specific customer. But here's where it always goes wrong. You create this very careful balance. And then what leadership always does is they split up the goals and give them to individual people. So they say, hey, project manager, time to market. You know, that's all that's important to you. That's what your bonus is based on. That's what your promotion is based on. It's very personal. Okay, R&D, you know, uh, you're going to develop this new feature and have it ready in time. And that's going to dictate your career path, whether you pull this off or not, you know, hey, reliability, quality team, make sure it doesn't fail. If it does, it's your fault. And so you split up the goals, give them the individual people, and you put them in an arena to compete, fight to the death, right? So when you do that, you're going to have winners, right? There's no way that product is coming out the other end with that that balance, it's just not possible, right? I mean, there's no way those gladiators in the arena are going to end up, you know, all coming to an agreement at a table of this is the correct balance. That project manager is like, I'm not losing that bonus, you know? So what happens is you have winners and they get rewarded, right? So let's say it's the project manager and time to market and they had all the right social connections and, you know, inside and, and they just were really able to, you know, make it to where it went out on time, regardless of if the design was mature or regardless of a feature was done, and they will get rewarded, you know, and congratulated. Um, and then maybe the, you know, the R&D engineers did get that feature done and pushed it out there, but it really wasn't ready yet. And they didn't, all those testing things that we found were concerned about, you know, they didn't, you know, they kind of were like, nope, we're getting it out there. We'll fix it. You always hear that. We'll fix it in 2.0. I'm like, do you really want your customers to be your test engineers? Like, that's what you're basically saying, 2.0. So 
you know, there's everybody's excited with congratulations. So then what happens? You know, let's say six months or a year later, field issues start popping up. First, they're a little bit of noise and they're called gremlins. And then there's more and more. Now it becomes a serious situation. So leadership says, hey, we need to make a tiger team, if you've heard that term. <laughs> and what they do is they pull together the people who, from the project, who at that point have left and gone on the other projects, right? Because, I mean, their accountability ends often at the, after release. And, you know, they're not even around for that part. So they get pulled back to, hey, you guys have to come back and save us and figure this out. You guys know how to do this best. And, you know, what is kind of unsaid is, hey, can you come back and fix the problems you made? And they, as a tiger team, you know, they go at it and they figure it out and they solve it, you know, and they get things worked out. And there's a big banner and a cake celebrating it. And in the end, the leadership, the CEO, CTOs, those guys are left holding the bag for this whole calamity. But the insane part is they incentivize that team twice to make a poorly reliable product. The first time was get it out on time, get your feature developed, you get rewarded. And the, the cost is going to be things like reliability. And the second time is you brought them back as heroes. You gave them FaceTime with leadership, right? Because leadership is like, what's going on with this? They got FaceTime and all these things that helped them. So here's a CEO and CTOs, you know, incentivizing their team to twice make a product that's not going to be very successful. And the leaders are the ones left holding the bag. And, and then they just, the cycle continues, you know, and it's, how do you do and it nobody right? kind of sees the bigger picture and how to do it differently. Yeah. How do you do it differently? That's what, that, that's the question on everybody's mind right now that's listening. It's like, what's the, okay, we get it. This sounds like a, it sounds like an intentional disaster, like waiting to happen. It's like, if I wanted to ruin everything, that is my best plan. What's the right yeah. way to do it? So the right way to, to do it is that product factor balance has to be held by everybody all the time, right? So those goals and that balance has to steer decisions and be visible throughout the entire program. The only way you are possibly going to release the product that you intended in the beginning is if they're all present. And there's a couple ways and tools that you know I've written in my book to to help with that. And you know the it's you know I always I always kind of the analysis is if you're driving down the road, um, you have to always keep that destination in mind in front of you that you're driving towards. Right? You can't be short sighted. And just letting the car drift. And when you hear the guardrail on one side, jerk the wheel the other way until you're oncoming traffic and jerk the wheel again. It's that having that goal in the far distance and making all the small corrections and everything you do, acceleration, braking, turning, to continue to, to go there. And if you're doing it right, there's no big corrections, right? An experienced driver isn't jerking around. You almost, it's effortless. You can't even tell they're steering. So that's the fundamental difference. And I... A lot of it I put under this one methodology I have called bounding methodology. And the bounding you can imagine is the, the concept is all those things are steering you all the time and tools and techniques and programming where that occurs. Obviously, one of the first things is you can't hand off the goals to the individual people in their roles. You know, that, that, as I said, that right there, you just made a gladiator arena. Everybody is holding all the goals. Now they're bringing their specific discipline, you know, of their role to this as an aid, as a specialist. But at no time are they being measured only for one of the goals. And I have methods like the focus rotation methodology. I have the strategy bounding. Um, I have uh, Perea program risk effects analysis is another tool I made. And all of these tools working in concert kind of just, you know, make sure that that basic principle 
that we have a specific destination in mind that we set in the beginning very carefully. I mean, marketing and business very carefully made a product balance, right? They stopped and said, there's a homeowner here that just got their biggest mortgage and they're dirt poor and they need a power drill that, you know, to do this project they're doing. And A, the duty cycle is very low. So even a poor reliability is not going to, you know, they're using it, whatever, 20 hours a year, whereas a contractor is using it thousands of hours a year. So they can even have a lower reliability technically that performs very well. You know, all these things they do in analysis, a cost point, they're not going to buy it if it's 35 bucks, if we can do it for 25, you know, all the, they don't need all the fancy features. They just want to turn screws. Um, so much work went into that. How do you not let that continue to drive all the decisions? And, and that's really where most of my tools, you know, come from is, is that basic principle. It's pretty clear to me, like the bad way to do it, right? Give break up the goals, throw money at the people. Uh, you're explaining from what I'm taking from it is like you have a centralized goal, like a series of things that need to happen and you have everybody go towards them like together and maybe like this bounding concept. But where do you throw the money? <laughs> where do you? Oh, oh so with yeah. the, you know, a simple way to do it. Here's a simple uh, analogy is think of balancing a home budget, right? You have a home budget, you have money allocated to food, money allocated to rent or mortgage, money allocated to vacation each year, money allocated to entertainment each weekend, all these things. And it's not throwing money at it. You have a set amount of money. You have income, right? You have your income, whatever it is. Well, how, how, do you, how do you bonus them? How do you, how do you bonus what? people? How do you bonus people? Oh, 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 I see what you're saying. How do you incentivize people to do this? Yeah. The right way. Oh, we, oh, they're they're accountable for they're accountable for the product successfully being what it was originally, right? So okay. before, uh, I'll put it this way: in that previous version I gave you with the project manager, and their bonus is tied to time to market. Me as somebody who spent my entire life passionately wanting to make highly reliable products, if you made me that project manager, I'd be like, screw reliability, screw everything forget it. I want to keep my job. I got kids I got to feed. I mean, like I would, it doesn't matter. You've put me in a situation where I'm, that's why I call it a gladiator thing. I'm going to, I'm going to find the reliability guy, trip them in the hallway. You know, the R and D guys, if they're going to be too late, like I'm going to sabotage what they're doing. Like, I'm sorry, but this is literally money in my bank account. So that's how that was incentivized. What if you switched my incentive to as the project manager, that idea of time to reliability, right? What if what you measured me on was not the time to market when I put it in the customer's hands, but when are we able to drop the resource? So we've allocated X amount of resource. We'll call that 100% in development. When does that resource for the product drop to 10%? That's your time to reliability. That's what you're measured on, buddy, right? So when that's what you're measured on, you switched out for the project manager and they hear about early in the program, we're concerned about this. We think it's about four more weeks of tests Da, 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 da. But we think that it's going to reduce our statistical confidence risk by this much, which is like, you know, they're going to be like, do it. <laughs> I got to keep my job. You know what I mean? Like you've switched the, you've connected the project manager now to the accountability the leadership has, the accountability the stockholders have, the accountability the company has. You know, like you've connected them now to the, re everybody's in synchronicity with each other and what needs to happen. Yeah. And then they can balance the trade-offs. So like for me, I don't have experience developing physical product, uh, like, you know, electronic type designs. I do have experience building software. And if we set a deadline, then we, you know, we don't cut quality, we cut scope. So like we get the, you know, most utilitarian version out and get it delivered according to the deadline and like the bells and whistles get chopped off accordingly. And then we just go into another, um, 
iteration that way every iteration you end up with something solid and reliable that does one thing that you you know couldn't do before so it's useful to some degree it's reliable it's there and then you add on as you go so how do you do that and like the um would that apply at all to physical products yeah oh yeah and well, uh, absolutely no because if so I'm talking about, you know, maturity of technology. So if you, if you have like, you know, an airplane, right, we're designing the next generation airplane and a lot of the technology in airplanes is going to be the same year to year, right? Airplane wings work the same. You're going to use standard wings the way they've done a hundred years, those principles, you know, the controls and stuff. But our thing is we want to include this new kind of engine, a fusion engine or whatever you want to call it. That's a huge step in what we had before. And you want to include, you know, um, you know, one or two other things. Now, if it turns out that, you know, this plane offers a lot of benefits in a lot of ways, but it seems like the fusion engine thing is going to really push out your time to market by two years or something, you might decide to not, to not include that, right? And include it later as another thing. And actually very, you know, very sadly with Boeing, that's what happened. Actually, I wrote an article about the Boeing. It was in uh, Bloomberg Law um, the Boeing incident, you know, where we had the two 737 Maxes crashing, and that's basically exactly what happened. Uh, they made the wrong decision. What occurred there in principle is so simple. Um, Airbus, ha uh, th there was new, much more higher efficient engines created in, and, you know, not as the type that Airbus and Boeing would both incorporate into their aircraft. And, you know, these, uh, if more efficient engines had very different physical dimensions and things like that. So Airbus designed an entirely new um, airplane that was based around the idea of incorporating these engines. Boeing realized there was no way they were going to get time to market competitively with Airbus, who had started ahead much earlier on the, uh, the airframe. Uh, so what they did is took their old 737 design, which had been around forever, and modified it to accept these engines. And in doing so, they took it to the extreme of barely, it really, it just, it's a bad, it was a bad idea. Um, to make it work, they had to incorporate all kinds of, you know, software controls because it really was beyond what a pilot would normally be able to handle. It was like inherently a little bit unstable, so to speak, which is not an uncommon thing in fighter jets and things like that. They're inherently unstable uh, aerodynamics, but you use computers to keep it stable and use the pilot's inputs. And they kind of had to go to that arena much more than before in a commercial aircraft. So they let time to market drive them to where they should have said, you know what, we're just going to keep the older motors with not as good fuel efficiency. We're probably going to lose sales and market share because, you know, airlines aren't going to buy it compared to the Airbus. And we'll take our time and make a new airframe for these motors and be later to market. And they didn't. They let the pressure of time to market drive, which unfortunately ended up with two very severe accidents. And so, you know, from a software perspective, you would have said, sorry, we'll just use the old motors and, you know, take our time and release later generations. That would be the software equivalent to what you, the hardware equivalent to what you said. Yeah, that's, I, I'm glad we have things like the FAA. Typically, I'm like pretty limited government, but <laughs> when we have things for the cars and the planes, because I'm an entrepreneur and I know how attractive it is to just cut a corner and I know how things can snowball, you cut two corners, you cut three corners. So um, I do like the regulations that we have as far as, you know, the public transportations. 
keeping us safe. Yeah. And the FDA, and the FDA you know, all my work in medical yeah. and medical robotics and, you know, medical systems and, you know, the FDA is, you know, a big part of that. Right. So what else do we want to make sure we get out there? We definitely want to send people your way if they yep. are interested in reliability culture. So they, how would yep. they reach out to you? Yeah. So I actually, just between you and I, I created a new URL that's easier to remember for people who are driving in the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Remember, instead of apexridge.com, it's reliabilitywins.com will take you to a special summary for executives, um, which then there's then there's the culture section of my page and all that. But reliabilitywins.com will you know bring you to Apex Ridge and specifically the culture leadership services. Excellent. I just pulled it up. Yep. I made that for oh, you guys. Yeah. That's so sweet. You got, you got your headshot, you got your book, and then you have a talk to me button, like reach out. You, yep. I see seminars here. You do seminars? Oh yeah. No, I, yeah, I actually have a, I have a webinar coming up. Um, actually, if people want to register, I have a webinar coming up in January. I speak, I mean, before COVID, I spoke all around, um, you know, tons of seminars and stuff. I'm going to actually, as soon as COVID's done, I used, I would host uh, seminars in Boston, the Boston area for my customers in this area. Um, and everybody loved getting a, uh, a, a Friday off from work, legit. And uh, I would have it sponsored and food and the whole thing. And I would do this one man show where I would basically just ramble on for four hours and just talk about, you know, everything that anybody's interested in. And I, I, a lot of these new ideas is where I'd roll them out. And then we'd play in the lab the second half of the day because I did it at a local lab that I'm partnered with. But actually, you know, now with the culture stuff, I want to start doing seminars specifically on that. And, um, you know, I wanted to, to, you know, plan one. I'm waiting for COVID to kind of cool off a little bit. But um, I was thinking of like hosting one down at Miami Beach or something, you know, at a resort and, you know, invite leaders, you know, the leaders I know from around the country and around the world to come to it. Um, but right now things are online and I have a, a webinar that will be coming up on uh, January 10th. So it'll be coming out on January 10th. It's called The Alchemy of Rapidly Transforming New Technology. And, uh, you know, it covers uh, a lot of this, but um, I do, I, one of my funniest speaking stories is, so I got invited to Stuttgart, Germany. I'm a huge car guy. I'm a crazy car nut. And I love Porsche is one of my favorite ones. If you go to my website, you can see Porsches I torture in the name of science. The one <laughs> that I, I just took a 2006 Porsche 911, 997 and modified it to where I could carry a uh, 13 foot catamaran sailboat on top. That's normal. Um, to, demonst- yeah. to demonstrate my use case seven, because I have this whole use case seven idea this other oh, tool yeah. I developed. What is that? So- <laughs> I saw that. I saw that in the prep, and I'm like, use case seven. I was like, that sounds like some top secret like lab or something. What is use case so, seven? So use case seven is uh, I the idea is you know, when you are developing products, you um, you know, think of the base use cases, right? Usually you come up with three base use cases that you then extract what the stresses are and the conditions that are going to affect the design and use them as inputs and they also help drive what the testing is and how you interpret results. And uh, people tend to want to, you know, keep with the stresses the way they want the product to be used. So I started, you know, at most I've ever seen people create a six. And I was like, what about use case seven? This is use case seven. Think of the most ridiculous thing you can come up with. Like the guy who uses his lawnmower to trim the hedges, he picks it up and holds it sideways kind of thing. And I said, let's do that for a minute. Let's come up with our use case sevens. Crazy abuse. You know, somebody who uses their you know, their cell phone is a hammer, you know, kind of thing. You know, what happens? 
a couple things came out of it that were really interesting that always were interesting. One was it did serve the base purpose of, um, you know, what are the stresses that can happen that are, you know, unusual. Sometimes it, it turns out to be some of those are should be in the base use cases. Sometimes just simply they make the product more robust because when you mess around with them, you find that it fails in ways you didn't expect. You know, maybe that was a failure. Nobody's going to use their phone as a hammer, but you might find out that you can easily modify the phone, you know, outer shell in a way where it's much more robust to being smashed like a hammer. And what you just did was mitigate against uh, poor manufacturing quality, not resulting in a performance issue. You know, if you have a bad injection mold now because you changed the way it handles stress. Then there was a few other things that happened. New markets. I did this exercise with a team and we found actually a new market for their product that they're going to develop a different product for. So you might, you know, think of something ridiculous. So let's say, you know, with the guy using the lawnmower for the hedges and, you know, let's say hedge trimmers weren't really a thing yet and people did it just by hand. You might all of a sudden be like, wait a minute, what if you did make an automated way to trim hedges, you know, with a rotating blade? And you could end up developing something new. And that's actually happened with some of my customers. And then another one is litigation. You know, I've, I've been an expert witness in some big litigation cases. And it always kind of breaks my heart to be on the prosecution side. And there's all these things, you know, the engineers have documented and, you know, said that, you know, then can get used against you. And engineers know that. And they will be very cautious in how they talk about risks or potential things or document them. And that's really unfortunate because that limits, you know, improving the design against those things. And lawyers and engineers within a company kind of have that little bit of a standoff thing going on, you know, to the point that, you know, a fire is described as a thermal event or an explosion is a spontaneous disassembly event. You know, just it just gets, you know, silly. And the thing is with use case seven, if you do it as an exercise, use case seven helps you document it in a way to bring collaboration between the legal side and the engineering side, where even if you don't address these things, which of course you won't address a lot of them, what it does is it documents your sincerity in trying to understand all the possible things that could happen with your customers and mitigating as many things as are reasonable. And um, I ended up with this and putting it out there, had law firms reach out to me uh, who, who want to help their customers be more proactive and have uh, th that's how that Bloomberg Law article came out. I wrote it with some colleagues at White and Williams, which is a big law firm, who reached out to me and liked the use case seven idea. And um, you know, I've done other series on it. So this use case seven thing kind of became it organically grew into this tool that really is helpful in a lot of ways for engineering teams to kind of really explore these other areas and get much more from their products. So. Um, since I am an engineer at heart and, um, actually my wife put it in our wedding vows that she knew I'd modify everything in our house. She seriously, she felt like she had to say that in front of all our friends and family. We got married and she's right. Um, I'm an endless, <laughs> I, the fire department knows this firsthand. I'll put it that way. So, um, I like to do my projects and I kind of wanted to do things to, you know, help, you know, get the use case seven idea out there. And I was like, Oh, what if I'm a big car guy and I'm like, oh, what if, you know, Porsches, they design and engineer things so well, so far exceeding, you know, what needs to be there um, to where I think Enzo Ferrari once said, thank God there's no 48 hours of Le Mans or only Porsche would finish because they, the engineers always win the conversations I feel in those, in their boardroom arguments. And so what, what if we did a use K7 kind of thing for a Porsche? Like, let's pretend we were designing it. So I grabbed the one of my favorite ones is the 997-911. So 
This was a 2006 with 25,000 miles on it. I grabbed it from a little old lady who was, she was hysterical because she loved this car so much and she was moving to Costa Rica. It had 25,000 miles on it. I just, this was in January and uh, it's 15 years old, right? Like, what is that? Let's literally go in and get coffee once every other Sunday. And um, when I bought it, she insisted I have it shipped from Texas to my house in an enclosed trailer. I'm like, this isn't your car. <laughs> like, what do you care? She's like, well, I bought white shirts to put over the seats in case the guy's dirty who loads it in the truck. I was like, oh my God. So with the, uh, so the Porsche, so what I thought was, you know, Porsche had a big transformation back in the 2000s time, time frame where they went from just making sports cars, they rolled out the Cayenne and, you know, SUVs and all that. So I was like, what if you knew you were going to make an SUV at some point, you're a sports car company, why not see how much utility you can get out of a 911? So I was like, that's what I'm going to do to the horror of everybody in my Porsche community. So I designed a two inch trailer hitch that um, you can see all the calculations, a whole article and video series I did on it, did all the calculations and it, the trailer hitch is behind the license plate. So it's this two inch trailer hitch behind the license plate. Um, and it actually was kind of hard for a car that has a crumple zone, right? To get all that structural stress, but I, it worked. I got, I got my goals. I got 300 pounds of tongue weight. You could stand on it 300 pounds, which is about what you need. And I could pull some pretty big stuff. And then next I welded up an aluminum frame for the roof and I got, I could carry six wooden pallets on the roof of this thing. And then I made this frame that goes into the hitch because the ultimate goal I wanted to do was to carry this 13 foot catamaran sailboat that once I fit on this cross tour I had, and that was my final, my final thing. And I had other things in there, like be able to stuff the family in there and skis with a roof rack and go on trips and stuff. And it worked fine for me. My daughters wanted to murder me, putting them in the back of a Porsche for a few hours. But um, I drove it through, you know, I did all kinds of snow stuff and put snow tires on it. And uh, yeah, it was a really great. A lot of people really enjoyed it, the project. And, uh, you know, so it was, it was a fun way to do show use case seven. And so I have other use case seven ideas coming up, but um, we'll do a use case seven episode and we'll go like through all your past, like crazy inventions yeah. and fire department yeah. calls. I was about to just now do it just as of last week, it's not going to happen was a Lamborghini Gallardo. I was going to turn into a shooting break. I was going to make it into a station wagon. And uh, it was a friend of mine's car. And he was kind of doing a contest of who could come up with the craziest idea he would sell to them dirt cheap. And uh, so we all made these videos. I made a video on it. You can find on my channel of what I would do. He wanted everybody to make videos. And he called me out specifically. He was like, I want to see what you come up with for this. But um, he ended up doing it for a lady who wants to make a, she's calling it the Lambulance. She wants <laughs> to make it to carry sick kids around. Like she works with, you know, kids oh, of different win. disabilities. That, that idea wins a hundred percent of the time. Right. Yes. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I was like, oh, my station wagon. God damn it. I wanted to go to Home Depot on a Lamborghini and load in like two by fours. <laughs> Because <laughs> I had this I think... great idea. Oh my God. So my, so I don't know if you know the McLaren F1, you know, one of the greatest sports cars ever made, but it had three seats. It had the driver who was in the center, like in a Formula One car and two seats behind it like this. In the Lamborghini, I was going to move the motor back about like eight or 10 inches. And the, it was going to work out to where you had the two seats in front, but you could have one person in the back in the center with their legs going in between the other two seats. So now it's a three seater, which is way more applicable. And I was going to extend the roof line and make the whole thing with a hatch, you know, to, to, so I wanted to be able to go to Home Depot with me and to my two girls, load two by fours in, maybe an air conditioner or whatever else we buy, a shop vac, and then be able to go and like thrash the car around. That was my like ultimate goal. But, um, 
but it's now a Lambulance. So we'll see so, what happens. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll what, find what a new What a project. shame. All those sick kids getting transportation. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. This is great. Oh, dude, this is so good. <laughs> you know what? I would have taken them around in the station wagon. I mean, come on. Now you could carry two kids at the same time. You still could do mine and then she could do that. But, you know. There you go. Yeah, you, you could collaborate with them. Yeah. yeah. This is great. All right. So people that want to learn more, they can go to apexridge.com. What else? Do they fill out a contact form? I made reliability wins just because you'll remember. Yeah, I thought it might be more memorable if they were driving and listening. I think Apex Ridge is better. Oh, okay. It's, All right, cool. it's easier to spell. It doesn't have like the I L I T, but for, for okay. us non-brilliant people, um, A P E X R I D G E is just like it's real simple. What does it mean? So I wasted twelve dollars on reliability wins for that domain name. Thanks a lot. You did, you did a hundred percent. Um, <laughs> <$12. laughs> <Yeah>. um <laughs> what does Apex Ridge mean? Oh, so I in thinking of a name, I you know, so you know, apex is, you know, hitting the top of what you want. And I was like, oh, a ridge is a three-dimensional apex. So take it and extrude it out and you have this infinite apex. So apex ridge. That's awesome. And if that didn't work, you could have gone with like infinite apex because that sounds super cool too. Infinite apex. That's a good one. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.